Acts chapter 2 is one of the most uh, important chapters in all of Scripture. This is uh, what is commonly referred to as the day of Pentecost. This is what is commonly uh, thought to be the uh, birth of the church, where the Holy Spirit comes and empowers his people. And uh, I'm excited to see some of the things that the Lord might speak to us this morning. And so uh, there's 41 verses. Normally we would read them all and hop through it, but I'm just going to jump right in with verse 1, and we are going to look at it um, together. Uh, as, as we look at this, we want to glean uh, some things that I think Luke, as an author, as a writer, would say to us in the way that he has specifically structured this passage. But we want to also see how the Holy Spirit is working uh, in God's people uh, to embed the gospel even in the speech uh, of, uh, of Peter as he declares just the, kind of this first sermon that happens. And so we come to verse 1, looking at uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, we'll stop there. The first thing we want to do is we want to understand what is the day of Pentecost. Uh, oftentimes, we think of the day of Pentecost being just the day that the Holy Spirit came, which in a sense, yeah, that is what happened, but, and that's how we commonly associate it. But in uh, the New Testament times, the reason that we do this is because we don't observe the Old Testament uh, ceremonies. For the Jews at this time, this uh, was the equivalent of the Feast of Weeks. This is something that we looked at uh, as we studied through the book of Exodus not too long ago. Uh, and the Feast of Weeks is a Jewish holiday, that, uh, a, a, a celebration, a festival, where they came together to celebrate the harvest. And so in this, they would acknowledge God's goodness to provide for them, to bring forth uh, this is also kind of called the, the Feast of First Fruits. Maybe, I can't I don't remember what, exactly what we called it in Exodus, but Feast of Weeks, Feast of First Fruits. Um, but they would celebrate this first fruitfulness of the earth. And, and the word there, Pentecost, it simply just means 50th. That's, that's all that it means. It doesn't have anything um, special other than that. And the way, the reason that it's called this uh, 50, 50th is because it's counted down uh, to this day where this feast begins after the end of Passover. So it's 50 days uh, from that time. It fell uh, after that first presentation when they would bring forth the, the first fruits, the, the, uh, um, the first harvest, and, and offer it, and then there would be this countdown. Now, so, th so this is kind of the context that they're coming into. They're celebrating a feast of celebrating God's provision, uh, they're celebrating God's goodness in bringing uh, um, this richness to them. But then there is something also that kind of is interesting that happens along this line as well. Some Jewish sources, some of the Jews associated Pentecost also with God's renewal of the law, of the, of the, or not the law, the covenant, the renewal of the covenant. This, after the first, the very first Passover, that happens in, uh, I, well, it's described in Exodus chapter 13, after the very first Passover that happens here. Uh, the, from, from that time, there is um, three months after that, the exodus of Egypt, then comes this renewal of the covenant because they go out and uh, they make their way to Sinai. 
And so you can read about that renewal of the covenant, and this falls along that, that same date and time in Exodus chapter 19. So some Jews uh, would be celebrating the Feast of, of Weeks and Firstfruits, and some would also consider this to be a time to celebrate the renewal of God's covenant. And so at this time, Jerusalem itself, the city, would be packed with Jewish visitors coming to celebrate the feast. There would be uh, this, uh, the city would swell in, in uh, visitors. They would gather in anticipation of celebrating the harvest and remembering the covenant. Now, we have, uh, that's the context that they arrive in here, and we find that the disciples, they're all gathered together in one place. Now, I want you to see here that there's definitely the 12 disciples uh, for sure in place, but there's the possibility that there are uh, the 120 that we find previously in verse 1, uh, or chapter 1, verse 15. We see that there are about 120 gathered in that room, uh, instituting this first council where they're looking to replace one of the disciples who has uh, defected. And so this is the context. And then in verse 2, as they're waiting there on the day of Pentecost, in this time of expecting God to provide for them and celebrating God's provision and celebrating God's uh, covenant, his faithfulness, here comes God giving of his Holy Spirit, providing for his church, being faithful to his covenant to fill them with his Holy Spirit. We find this described in verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now I want you to note a couple things about this. This happens suddenly. It's expected that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit, the helper, which Jesus told them, you should go and wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which I will send to you. So they knew that this was coming, but they didn't know the method or the means by which it would come. They didn't have this understanding of how is this going to be accomplished. Now, God gives them some clues, we'll see in just a moment, but I want you to see that this comes without warning. It's, it's expected, but it's still a surprising event. Now, Luke writes of the experience, and he describes this uh, both in terms of sound and sight. And these things give the Jews understanding of what is happening. For us as uh, New Testament readers, on, as modern readers, we kind of get this and we think, okay, um, there's a sound, but like we're not feeling it. And so like basically like our movie is broken or like the theme ride that we're on is like not like something's messed up. This isn't going down how it's supposed to go down. But for these first century readers, this would be uh, understood. Here's how it's described. There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. First, we look at the sound. This is a violent, blowing sound. However, there was no actual wind. So that had to be uh, kind of a little bit disoriented because disorienting because you hear the sound of the wind. It's like you're in this hurricane uh, sound, but you're, you're just not experiencing uh, any of the feeling of that. But it's described in this way to call uh, to their attention what is actually happening. In Scripture, the word there for wind uh, is a symbol and, and, it's off, and it shares the same uh, description 
The, the same root word, and it is the same word, as the same word for spirit or breath. So wind, spirit, and breath are all one word. And these things are symbolic of, in Scripture, of God's spirit. And so this is described as wind, but it's not wind. These are the same words in Greek. And they're linked within the span of Scripture. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you a couple examples. The first example, Jesus speaks of this to uh, the rabbi Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, he says to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who was born of the Spirit. So he's saying, the spirit and the wind, they're linked together. They're, they're similar. When you think of the wind, you ought to be thinking of the spirit. Now, earlier in Israel's history, uh, one of the most absolutely mind-blowing, miraculous events happens uh, in Ezekiel chapter 37. You might want to flip over there because we'll read this little portion. In the Old Testament, we also see that in Scripture, Wind is symbolic of God's spirit. And I think this weighs in on how the disciples on that first day perceive this sound. In Ezekiel chapter 37, God calls Ezekiel to prophesy to the wind. Now, we don't have time to give the whole context around like why he's doing this and all this, but let me give you the, the story. Uh, he calls Ezekiel to prophesy to the wind commanding it to blow upon dead men, to blow upon uh, the bones, specifically, of dead men. Now, these are no ordinary bones. That they're, just, they're not just fresh. Not, this isn't just a battlefield where there are dead bodies laying around. These bones are dry. They are completely bleached white by the sun. They're, it is evident that they have been there for a while. And here is what the Lord says to Ezekiel in chapter 37. We'll start in verse 9. He says this, Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So first we got the word breath there. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So I want you to note that, that word, whole house of Israel. He's speaking to the entirety of Israel, this, uh, this huge nation. Now, he goes on. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. And then verse 12, therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Verse 14, and I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So the Lord speaks to Ezekiel and says, 
Here's what you got to do. You got to prophesy over these dry bones. And when they came to life, he said, these bones are, these people, this new army is representative of Israel. They have no hope. They're lost. But it's only when God breathes his spirit into them that they are raised. And he links this with also resurrection. He says, I'm going to open the graves. I'm going to raise you from the grave. And I'm going to put my spirit within you and you shall live. And so it's the breath of God that breathed into them and filled them with new life. So the disciples would have understood this to be the wind of God blowing upon them or the spirit of God. Now that's what they heard. Now Luke tells us what they saw. Stick with me. Verse three, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now in scripture, fire is another symbol of God's spirit. In Exodus chapter uh, 3, we find in the Old Testament, the presence of God there appearing before Moses at the burning bush. There's the bush that Moses happens upon, and the bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. God's presence is marked by this fire. Later, in Exodus chapter 19, upon Mount Sinai, at the renewal of this covenant, uh, we find that Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And then down in Exodus chapter 40, verse 38, at the end of Exodus, we find the closing remarks, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel, so there's the entirety again, all the house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. So in the Old Testament, what they're saying is that fire is always symbolic of God and it's appearing before the house of Israel. It's there. This fire is representative of the Lord's presence. Now in the New Testament, John the Baptist had prophesied that when the Messiah came, he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And this is what he says of Jesus. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. And so the disciples, as they're in the upper room here, they're experiencing this time and they hear the sound of the wind, but then all of a sudden they have this fire, these little tongues of fire upon their heads. It rested on each one of them. And I love how God does that. He doesn't appear in this one blaze that's there like they would have expected at the tabernacle, but the flame is hovering above each individual there. And what God is communicating through that is that his spirit is there to reside in each believer. That there's not going to be one central place where if you want to go and meet God, you can go to the temple or to the tabernacle and meet with God. But yet God will come and dwell within. His spirit will come and dwell within each individual who trusts in him for salvation. Here's the result. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result of this filling on the day of Pentecost is that they begin to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance, the ability to do this. So they're filled specifically on this day with the Spirit so they can speak in other tongues. Now, let me give you a little uh, 
we'll step aside here um, from our story for a moment and comment on this. The other tongues that they are speaking of here on this occasion in uh, the book of Acts, in this specific text, are real languages that are different than their own languages. We'll see that in a moment as we make our way through the text. This is different than the spiritual gift, which we find in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, of speaking in tongues, which can only be understood through an interpreter, which God gives as a gift of interpretation. So this is something that's totally different. Now, we also want to understand this. The giving of tongues on this moment, on this occasion, is for the specific purpose of this day. And so we need to understand and note that the speaking of tongues is not something, in, in either aspect, is not something that will always happen or should be expected to happen upon the receiving of the Holy Spirit or conversion. There are churches that believe that you are only a Christian if you have this uh, gift of the Holy Spirit of speaking in tongues. This is not what Scripture teaches. The, the, the tongues that are for this moment in this text are for the group of people there to testify to God's work. We'll see as we go through the text. So don't be confused. Uh, this uh, conversion, becoming a Christian, trusting in Christ for salvation, and tongues don't have to happen. Sometimes the Lord will gift, gift someone with a gift in that moment. Sure, it could happen, but it's not a requirement. It's not a requirement. You don't have to have that. And we don't have time to talk about the gift of tongues today. We're going to talk about it like in the future um, as we go through the book of Acts and probably as we go through this. Um, so save your questions. We'll get there. Here's what happened in this moment. They are speaking in tongues. They ha the Holy Spirit has given them the ability to communicate in languages that were real and were able to be understood by people in that context, in that moment. Now, here's the response of the observers in verse 6. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So, this is, again, all of Israel. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So, these Jews, devout men from every nation, these are faithful Jews from every nation upon earth who are present in this moment. They're all here for the celebration of the feast and the Pentecost, maybe the renewal of the covenant. And so these Jews, they hear the commotion of what's happening. I don't know if they heard like this crazy sound of wind, but they didn't feel it. And they're like, let's go check out what's happening over there. Or like they just heard all these languages and they're like, what? It's hard to find people who speak my language in this area. And they decide to come over. Not really sure how that went down. Uh, but they hear the commotion. They come over. And as they came together, they were confused. They were bewildered because they were hearing their own languages spoken. Now look at their, their response in, in verse 7. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native languages? So they are amazed and astonished. This is a totally miraculous event. This is something that, like, they're totally confused about how it's happening, but they're just blown away. Now, the multitude, they rightly recognize the Galilean 
origin of the disciples. They're like, we know who these guys are. We know where they're from. We know the region that they're in. Their accent is super distinct. And so there's no way that they should be able to be communicating in our language. Right? It, this, is, this would kind of be something like, um, okay, like if, if you've ever like heard someone from like Brooklyn speak, uh, or somebody from like the northern part of England where like the accents are thick and even if you speak English you have a hard time understanding them you're like what what are you saying it's like somebody of in, in one of those highly specific accents all of a sudden speaking absolutely dialect perfect French or like dialect perfect Swahili or, or something like that it's like that should never happen like I speak the base same language as you and I can barely understand you, but somehow like your inflection and accent is like masterful. This, they're, they're absolutely blown away at this. Now, Luke goes on to list some of the nations for us. Parthians, he says in verse 9, and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So here is Luke listing these geographic regions that make up this gathering. Now, all these folks who are here, they are about to bow their knee to Christ. This is the recording, the birth of the church. These people are all about to meet Jesus for the first time, and well, I guess they end up saying, like, this is our second time. We like him more this time. But uh, this is, they're about to come into a relationship with Christ. This early church is recorded to be made up of hugely ethnic groups. They are from all over. This means that today's church should be made up of a multi-ethnic community, that we are not all one, one flavor, one background, but we are there created by God to reflect his character with your ethnic or racial background that you have been given. That is something that God has ordained for your life and given you a specific and helpful ability to speak into your culture as an insider that other people cannot do. So we have to support other brothers and sisters who look different than us, who have different cultures than us, to help them learn and know and enjoy Jesus more so that they can help other people meet Jesus. We want to equip them. We want to pray for them. That's one of the kind of main reasons that you know, as, as Americans, we often are just so inward focused and we want to look and recognize that America is not listed here at all. So like we just don't even don't even get to count in terms of like we're not the ultimate best church ever. Uh, we're not even listed. Um, but we have the ability and the freedom and God has placed the. Um, he's given us the responsibility of the laws that we have so that we can be faithful to him and support the nations and the peoples that do not have that same support. So we want to do that as God's people to recognize that God's church is made up of ethnic diversity and ultimately in the book of Revelation we see that it is the nations that are gathered together. They are all gathered together under the banner of Christ and so we want to see Christ's church reflect that ultimate uh, end. 
Now, here we find that this group of people, they're speaking, or they, the disciples are speaking in tongues. Here, these people hear it. What are they speaking? These people testify that we hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. Now, they're not just saying whatever they want. This is a supernatural work. It's happening through God's Holy Spirit working in them. But they were heralding the gospel. The work of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus. And so they are doing just that. Now, here's, here's what we find out in verse 12. Okay? Some misconceptions that come up. They were all amazed and perplexed. Again, we find out they're amazed and perplexed. But they didn't understand what was happening. They're saying to, to one another, what does it mean? What does it mean? But others said, they are filled with new wine. So, I want you to see this. And this is hugely important for us because there is a huge range of uh, churches. There's a huge range of experiences that as a Christian, you may come into contact with and experience. Okay, for... Uh, we need to understand, and let me just give you, before we get into this, before I sidebar off on this, as a church, we are, we're, we're a non-denominational church, and we're not cessationist in that we believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not for today. We believe that God has given us his Holy Spirit, and he has given us gifts, the ones that are listed in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. We believe that. However, we also believe in the book of 1 Corinthians that says that these things ought to be done in order and they ought to be submitted to love. If you have the gift of tongues but you don't have love, you're nothing. So we believe in the exercise of the gifts, but we believe that they have to be applied properly. Now, we're not the only church that's this way. Uh, there, are, there are lots of others, but what usually happens when you start talking about the gifts of the Spirit and the, and the emotional kind of things that happen around that is you either get uh, go too far to one side, I believe, and you're just embracing any supernatural experience. It seems like, oh, any, you know, anything seems like it's from the Lord, so this must be good and we feel great about it. Or you're completely shutting it off and saying like, no, that's not really for today. We're not going to embrace the gifts of the Spirit and those things are done. We're kind of somewhere in the middle. This is what we believe. Now, I think this is noteworthy here, and this is what, uh, what we need to understand. The Holy Spirit has come in power to equip his people to use a gift, a supernatural experience in this moment. Guess what happens with everybody else? They don't know what it, what it means. Nobody knows what it means. They're, not, they're, they're confused. Some people even think they're drunk. They're like, oh, these, du these dudes are drunk. When the Holy Spirit works, it's not always evident what the purpose and use of it is. And so this means that we have to interpret, as God's people, we have to wisely interpret supernatural experiences through the lens of Scripture. We have to say, is there a precedent for this? What is this experience doing? Is it leading us to Christ? Is it leading us away from Christ? Are we more in love with the idea of experiencing supernatural experiences, or are we in love with Jesus? The, the experiences themselves, the gifts of the Spirit, cannot become a means to an end. We can't use them. We can't use like Jesus as like, oh, we're going to come to church because we want to have that thing where you know everything's like feels super nice and we get to experience the gifts of the Spirit. No, Jesus is the ultimate. Jesus is the end. 
And so this means that we have to look and do exactly what Peter does later in the text. He doesn't guess and say, well, it could be this, but he looks to find the meaning of this in Scripture. He looks to Scripture to validate that experience. And so this means that not all supernatural experiences are good. We have to test them, Scripture tells us. Only the ones that are scriptural and glorify God are. Test everything. So, some people don't know what it means. The other people, they think they're mocking, they're filled with new wine. They're kind of like half serious there. Um, Obviously, the disciples wouldn't be drunk. Peter makes that clear. He's like, it's a little bit early in the day for that. But when uh, a bunch of blue-collar workers who have, like, rough accents get drunk, they don't, like, all of a sudden speak, like, perfect dialects from other nations. Like, that's not, they do dumb stuff, not, like, really, like, intelligent, perfect, like, testifying to God's glory sort of, sort of work here. Uh, so they're kind of, like, mocking them here. Now, we come to Peter's speech. Peter's like, you guys don't know what this means, so I'm going to come, and I'm going to stand up and bring understanding. I'm going to bring gospel truth to you so you can have an idea of what's happening here, right? Hold on tight, because we're going to move quick through this section. Peter, standing with the eleven, verse 14, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So Peter, he stands up. He's taking charge. He's with the 11 there. He lifts up his voice and he addresses this crowd. Now, I want you to see the contrast here. Before Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, he's a little bit timid and he's a little bit wild. He's like, he's either like too quiet or he's like out of control. We find that it's Peter in Mark chapter 8 who's, who's like, Jesus has to tell him, like, get behind me, Satan. He like calls him like Satan. You're working for Satan. Get behind me. Later, in, at Jesus' uh, trial there, um, on the night before Jesus is crucified, it's Peter there who is there, like, uh, taking this oath, swearing that he doesn't know Jesus. He's like, I swear by the name of God that, like, I do not know Jesus. And then, you know, of course, he's like just all like distraught and destroyed after. He's a wreck. But then after the Holy Spirit comes and fills him, he stands up. He knows what to do. He's speaking with authority. He brings scripture. He's correcting error. It's the Holy Spirit working in him to empower him. This is power, the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So here's what Peter does. He gets up. He lifts up his voice. He addresses them. Verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and, uh, sorry, sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So Peter gets up and he says, you guys, what this is, is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, where God said that he would pour out his spirit. This isn't something new, but this is something that God has planned and he has done. He cites Joel uh, in verse 17. He speaks of the God pouring out his spirit. And this is this idea of like this waterfall of God's spirit, this anointing, this absolute deluge of 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 uh, being filled, being covered. And then he says, look, the Spirit is going to be poured out to the extent that your sons and daughters shall prophesy. It's enabled God's people to prophesy. Young and old, 
male and female. There's not a respecter of age, class. All people. God is willing to use all people in his kingdom. Now, he says that they're going to prophesy, and then he also kind of throws in there this idea that some people will have visions and some people will have dreams. Now, in the Old Testament, these were prophetic activities. Visions and dreams were also prophetic activities. And so the idea behind this is God is giving his spirit to his people so that they might partake in prophetic activities. Now, in the Old Testament, the purpose of prophecy was to give a glimpse into God's plan, right? We think of it as like future telling, like let me like have this idea of what's going to happen and so that way I can uh, make sure I'm reacting properly or, you know. The idea of this is, is to give a glimpse into God's plan, to give a prophet glimpse into God's plan so that God's people might know his character. They might know what he's like. They might understand that, uh, he, that he is who he says he is. We see this all throughout the book of Exodus where the Lord's like, I'm going to do this and my name's going to be made great among the nations. Like there's God saying what will happen. He's giving a glimpse to Moses what's going to happen. And so he does this, but this is so that they might proclaim God's character. There we see that this will be done so that all the nations might know his name. And so at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, who is God, comes and indwells the believer, making God's character known, right? And then we have, that's where we have the fruit of the Spirit, God's character, the, the um, characteristics of God that are described in the book of Galatians, are indwelling the believer and providing an opportunity for Jesus to be lifted up and exalted, through the proclamation of the gospel and through God's people living fruit-bearing lives. And so in Acts, having God's people be receiving his spirit, it helps them come to a place where they know God's plan, they know what he has accomplished, and then will therefore go and proclaim the gospel. Now we'll look at some of the other um, gifts of the spirit later on there in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, there is this idea of prophecy, and we'll kind of dig a little bit deeper at another point. But th this is what, what um, Peter's getting at. This was brought about so that the mission, which Jesus told them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, might take place, that they might do this. Now, verse 19, and I will show you wonders in heaven and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Luke doesn't communicate this, but there's a time span jump that happens. He's covering it in, in this passage. First, he starts off quoting the beginning of Joel in Joel chapter 2, and he's talking about Pentecost. Now he's talking about the day of the Lord. This isn't all the one same event, so... Uh, this, is, this is happening a little bit later. Peter is speaking of the time uh, when the nations are judged. This is the event that you find later in, uh, I believe, Joel 3. The nations are judged there. There's a prophecy of the nations being judged. Now, the, every nation under earth is gathered here. This is the context. They're all gathered in Jerusalem. And so Peter knows who he's talking to. He's like, this is the Holy Spirit, and also you guys are all the nations. Just a reminder, like the nations will be judged. 
Here, he's, th- he's throwing this thing out there for them. And, and Jesus mentioned this similarly in, in Mark chapter 13. Uh, he says in verse 24, But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heaven and the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Later, we also see the same description, the description in uh, Revelation chapter 6. So what's Peter doing here? Why is he all of a sudden getting into this? What he's doing is he's linking one prophecy with another. And he's saying, since you guys can clearly see that this is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, that God's pouring out his spirit upon all flesh, since that has clearly come to pass, this validates Joel's word as a good and solid prophet. Therefore, the day of judgment is also going to come. He's, he's linking them together. Since you have seen this come to pass, you should also have confidence and believe that the nations will be judged. Now, Peter doesn't leave them without hope. He goes on in verse 21, and he says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's like, you're going to be judged, but everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, these are Jews that he's speaking to. So Peter has to define now what he means by calling on the name of the Lord because uh, we are calling upon the name of the Lord. We're good. We don't need to be saved because we're Jews already. So Peter, he's, he gets up. He's like, okay, now I see where we need to go. Verse 22, men of Israel. Now, now he's going to go about proving that Jesus is Lord. He's like, this is the name you need to call on. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. So he's speaking to all of Israel and he's setting out here to prove that Jesus is Lord. He says, Jesus is a man who proved himself to you. You have a record of his mighty works, his wonders, his signs, all that he has done. You have the evidence of Jesus' life before you. This should not be a question. You yourselves know. Then verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So Peter, he speaks first of God's sovereignty. He says, this Messiah, this Jesus, he was delivered up according to God's definite plan and his foreknowledge. What the, the typical understanding of the Messiah was that he wouldn't have to die, but here do, he's calling on the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and saying, no, it's true that God planned this out. God wasn't surprised that the Messiah did indeed have to die, but Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, not only did God foreknow this and ordain it, but he says, you guys killed him and crucified him. And then he calls him wicked men. You guys are lawless. Just straight up. He was killed, but Peter still doesn't stop. Look at verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the resurrection, he says, is the ultimate validation of Christ's work, his ministry, the signs, wonders, all that he has done. It is the validation of his status before the Father. And he says it was God who raised Jesus from the dead. It was God who did this, validating Christ's work. And he says it was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. One, because he had defeated it. He had conquered the grave. But again, Peter presses in deeper to show this, referencing 
the Psalms. He wants to establish that Christ is uh, Lord even over death and that he is the fulfillment of God's promise to King David. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also, also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So Peter's point here is that the prophecies, or David's prophecies, um, Peter's point is that David prophesies, excuse me, concerning Jesus, that he could not be held by death because Jesus is seen to be the fulfillment of the Davidic kingly line. Jesus had to come into his rule. He, it was not possible for him to be held because he had to rule and reign eternally. Now, Peter recognizes uh, what the Jews may be wondering. Who, who in the world is David talking about this in this psalm? Isn't he talking about himself? And so he continues in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So Peter says, guys, you know, you know that this is clearly about Jesus because David has died and he's still dead and you can go and see his tomb. So obviously David wrote this, but he's obviously not the one who's fulfilling this. It's clearly about somebody else. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would see, set one of his descendants on the throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did he, his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So Peter says, David knew all along that God had made a covenant with him to continue his line. Peter cites here uh, that what David writes in Psalm 132, verse 11, that he would set someone, one of his descendants upon the throne. But he says David had insight and understanding. He knew what the Lord was doing. See, after the Babylonian exile in the 6th century, there were no Davidic kings. So it was actually like not possible for someone to come in and rule and reign. So how would God's covenant with David be maintained if like David's uh, David didn't have any like direct lineage like that. Well, Peter says David foresaw, he knew, and he spoke about the resurrection of Christ. He knew when he was writing this that he was speaking that God would raise up one from his line who would rule and reign and would have a reign that does not end, who was eternal. Peter's point is that only through the resurrection could someone fulfill this prophecy. It was the only way that this was going to come about. It was only through the resurrection could someone from David's line rule forever over God's people. And so Peter says, this is Jesus who God raised up and that we are all witnesses of. He's the anointed Christ, the Messiah, the King. We are all witnesses, Peter says. Isn't this what Jesus told them to do? Here they are obeying to be witnesses. Now he continues, he doesn't just stop with Jesus' resurrection, 
He goes on, verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So not only has Jesus resurrected, but he has been exalted. He has ascended and is enthroned above and pours out his Holy Spirit upon the church. And then he cites Psalm 110. He presses in even deeper and says, here, let me prove it to you. David did not ascend into the heavens. He's like, we have got David's throne or his tomb. He's still there. He didn't ascend. So clearly this is about somebody else. Now, what is experienced at Pentecost through the pouring out, through the giving of the Holy Spirit is the direct result. It is close, so closely connected that if Christ did not ascend, ascend, then Pentecost, this moment of the Holy Spirit being poured out, would not happen. The only reason that this has happened is that Christ has ascended and he's seated with the Father. Now, Peter closes. He makes his final declaration. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter says two things. Jesus is Lord, and he's there, he's using God's name. He is God, and he is Christ, the Messiah. He is who he said he was. Now, I want you also to note something else that he's doing here. As he's coming to his close, he's drawing the attention of the nations to the fact that Jesus is Lord. He's referencing how he began. The nations will be judged. And in verse 21, he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he says, But Jesus is Lord. So what what Peter's doing is he says, Jesus is the Lord that you should call on. Since he is the Messiah, he's been resurrected by God, fulfilling all the prophecies. He's exalted to the right hand. He's ascended, and it's now Christ who is pouring out his spirit upon his church. So he's ending by saying, Jesus is Lord. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus is Lord. That's who you should call on. Let's do this. Now, verse 37, we get the response from these people. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? They're like absolutely just shocked and blown away. They're cut to the heart. They, this is the proper response of hearing the gospel. Just floored, like, dang, what did we do? Because they understand that they were complicit in the death of Christ, the one who God sent, the messenger who God sent to proclaim his love, his kingdom, they killed him. They recognize their sin. They see that they're in need of salvation. And so they are cut to the heart and they ask, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they are to repent, be baptized, and they'll receive the Spirit. For these men, repenting looked like completely reorienting 
their lives around Jesus as Lord. They have spent their life trying to live good and moral lives, following the law, following all that God had given them, trying to do good things, be good people. They've done all the right stuff thus far, but those things don't save. And so what they have to do is completely reorient their life around Christ. This is the call to every person who would come into a relationship with Christ. Maybe your background is not one where like things are all smooth and you've been trying to be a good person. Maybe you're just like a total wreck and you've been blowing it your whole life. Either way, the call is the same to the people who think they've been doing good and the people who've just been blowing it. The idea is the same. Reorient your life completely around Jesus. He is the ultimate fulfillment. He is the ultimate one who will meet our needs. These men had previously rejected Jesus as Lord, but now they're seeking to submit themselves. John calls them to be, or not John, Peter calls them to be baptized. This is the idea of water baptism. John baptized uh, people as a sign of repentance. And then he tells them, when you do this, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is available for all who trust in Christ for salvation. Not a select few, all. The Spirit of God will dwell in his people. Now we wrap up with the last three verses, verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord God, whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. Peter notes that this promise is for everyone, for you, for your children, for all who are afar off. And then he returns. It says, you know, he's he's used many words to preach the gospel there in that moment over and over. Maybe he had a bunch of smaller conversations along the way to be like, okay, you need to follow up about this, and we talk to you about that. We don't know how it went down. But here's what he says again to them in verse 40. He continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. What he's saying is, the situation that you find yourselves in, thinking you're a good person, is actually crooked. And this is the same words of Jesus. He's like, you guys are messed up. You've been trying to serve the Lord, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to be changed and transformed and made new. But I want you to note something that happens there. He says, he anchors his words there. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Right? And then we think like, okay, well, like the whole point of the gospel is that you can't save yourself. Right? The the whole point of the the gospel is that you, you can't do it on your own. You have to be saved by another. But this is, what he's essentially calling them to do is to make that confession that he called them to earlier. To save yourselves means to call on the name of the Lord. The way that you save yourself is to recognize that you can't save yourself and to call on the name of the Lord. And in verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So when he says save yourselves, what he's really saying is call on Jesus. Reorient your life around Jesus. Now many obeyed. And the church grew. They received the word and then they took action. Right? Check this out. In the period of time that 
since Christ's ascension, they went from 12 people to 120 people to 3,000 people. This is crazy. It's just like absolutely bonkers numbers overnight. This is through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Lord working in his people, and they are participating in the mission that Christ sent them on to help people meet him, to know him, and to enjoy him. And this is what he calls us to. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit as God's people so that we can do things with him, not for him. God doesn't need us to do things for him. We want to do things with him as he leads us, as he directs us. We want to exalt Jesus high. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you have recorded uh, this in the book of Acts so that we might celebrate your faithfulness in giving us your Holy Spirit, Lord. Even though you had gone out of the world, you didn't leave us as orphans, but you gave us um, the fullness of your Holy Spirit, enabling us to do all that you've called us to do. Lord, you've called us to obey you, but then you've given us the ability to obey you through your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we want to grow in our love for you even more so as we submit ourselves to you as our Lord and King. We want to be sure that our lives are oriented around you. And Lord, now we want to respond to you as our King, to say thank you, to ask you to work in our lives, to fill us and change us. And so, Lord, we don't want to come and hear your word proclaimed and the power of the gospel, Lord, this morning, and simply uh, just sit on our hands or, or go away. But we want to respond like these men. We want to be cut to the heart, Lord, not because of uh, any, um, any sort of smooth speech, but because your Holy Spirit is working in our hearts and that you are applying your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that, Lord, cause us to be cut to the heart and to respond this morning in worship. Be glorified in your church, Jesus. Love you. Amen.